How many of you, in light of, in light of changes and uncertainty and unsettledness, um, how many of you are reasonably familiar? You don't have to know it in total. But how many of you are reasonably familiar with what's called the serenity prayer? Could I see your hand? Um, for those of us that have been around the recovery world through the years, of course, the serenity prayer has been the mantra of that world. And uh, it's a beautiful prayer. It's interesting, this prayer was popularly attributed, and there's some conjecture about this, but it's attributed to one of my favorite theologians of the 20th century, a guy named Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, one of two theological genius brothers. Uh, Niebuhr is uh, the guy that is said to have written this prayer, at least in some form, a seminal form. And the prayer, those that know the prayer, you can join in with me, but the prayer that I recite several times a week, if not more, says essentially this, and if you know it, say it with me. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can. And wisdom to know the difference. It's one of those prayers or statements that is so brilliant that when you hear it the first time, Jason, you think, why didn't I write that? Because I've intuited it, I've thought it, I've tried to live it. Um, surely it's been a part of my life long before I ever heard it articulated. Think about it again. God, the acknowledgement of something bigger and broader than us. A vast mystery, a creative force, Something, someone to whom we're responsible. Something, someone from which we came to which we're going. An acknowledgement, as the first step of the 12th of the 12 step process says, an acknowledgement that that we are powerless. Um, an acknowledgement of the second step of the 12 step process that there is something or someone greater than ourselves. And by greater, we're not talking qualitatively, because if there is a God, we are of the substance of God. So if this is a creation, then this is no diminishment of the quality. But in terms of just quantitative power, there is something greater, bigger, primal to all of us. God, grant me an acknowledgement that what is to come next is gift. God give to me, grant me serenity. I made mention of the fact today on social media that a lot of religions emphasize doing. Um, other religions primarily emphasize being, not to the absence of doing, but a primary emphasis of you have to be before you do. And then religions like ours, the Christian faith, that so many of us have grown up in, been reared in, we emphasize believing. Um, not just mental assent, but a deep sense of faith toward a set of ideas. 
Religions emphasize different things, believing, doing, uh, being. Very few religions, if any, give much credit to the idea of feeling. As a matter of fact, growing up, feelings for me were quite diminished. Not just undervalued, but almost demeaned. Feelings like happiness and joy and contentment, on the other hand, sadness, dissatisfaction, uneasiness. I was told that these things were superficial and not really important at all. And they were just on the surface of your being and they were to be, they were to be controlled, if not dismissed, they were to be measured and they were they were to be recognized as less than faith. They were to be less. They were to be recognized as less than the better parts of ourselves and the better parts of our nature. And I don't think that's true at all. I think most of us, through our believing, through our being, and through our doing, are all seeking to feel something. In the end, the things that we really want aren't you know, aren't as corporeal and physical as we might say. What we really want through all of these things, whether it's money or houses or cars or partners or friends, what we really want is a feeling. We want at the end of the day to have some sense of what the prayer calls serenity. We want to have a sense of homeostasis, it's called in biology, just a sense of balance in ourselves. God, grant me this feeling, this feeling of serenity, this feeling of peace. Grant me the serenity, the peacefulness that comes when I'm able to accept things that I cannot, literally cannot, no matter what I do, no matter how I try, things in life, vicissitudes they're called, circumstances, situations, things other people do. God give me the peace in the middle of all these things that I cannot change. I mean, today over in the Carolinas, a group of people gathered to spew waspish racism. Another group of people gathered to provide a buffer of grace and mercy and to say no. All humans are created equal, all are the beloved children of God. There are no inequities or inequalities that, um, no, all humans are the same. And this group of anti-racist protesters doing their best to stand up for what they believe is the kingdom of God had a car run through the middle of them and many are injured and some are hanging on the, on the, on the verge of death. And and so right now where we're sitting here, there are families that have sons and daughters and husbands and wives that are in hospitals and they very well might die. They're, they're facing peril for doing something that they thought was right. And there's absolutely nothing that their loved ones can do about it. I heard a lady today in a 12-step room, and those rooms are incredibly anonymous, but of course not naming her, telling you where I was. I heard a lady talk today about 
about the fact that she had poured her heart into journals for 30 years and in the throes of a divorce her ex-husband found her journals and these places that she had poured her heart out and literally opened a vein and bled onto the pages were actually brought into a courtroom Lee and read out loud all of her feelings and I watched this woman weep as she acknowledged the fact that in that moment she was incredibly powerless and couldn't do one thing about it and the question was at this point for her in that vulnerable moment not could she do anything about it but what would she allow it to do to her and this question of living in that tension between not being able to do anything about something not being able to rectify a situation fix a situation correct a situation and yet also being in that very vulnerable place of of acknowledging that it very well might make an impact greatly upon my life living in that space we pray this prayer God if you're not going to fix this situation and while we have testimonies testimonies abound to you know stories of people who have seen God intervene or at least it seems God has intervened the vast majority of struggles and situations like this we don't see God micromanage or manipulate or pull strings what do we do in the middle of these situations where it doesn't seem that God as a marauding intervener as a as a king of justice as a a prince of righteousness we don't see God intervene in the situation and make it all right what do we do in these situations that we can't do one thing about we pray and we ask God sitting in those courtrooms sitting in those hospital rooms we ask God in the absence of a material change to grant us serenity remarkably to accept things that are unacceptable to accept things that you know by all estimation absolutely should never be accepted God grant us a serenity to accept things that we that we cannot change and for whatever reason it seems you aren't stepping up to the plate to change the prayer goes on and God grant us the courage to actually change the things that we can there are things in this world that maybe God doesn't intervene except that God intervenes through us and give us a sense of courage in the midst of the serenity to look at some things and say this is changeable and if it changes it just might be up to me and if God indeed has hands and feet, if God indeed has involvement, it very well may be through me that God has this involvement. So God, while you're granting me serenity to lay back and to find some sense of peace in those things that aren't changing, also grant me courage to step into the middle of things, to show up and actually do something about those things that can change. And then, of course, that begs the final line of the prayer, and God, whatever you do, grant me the wisdom to know the difference. Because how, how do you really discern between the things that you can change and the things that you can't change? How do you discern the difference between the things that you're supposed to sit back and rest and see the salvation of God and just still yourself?
and those things that you're supposed to get involved in and become active in and, and even bring, bring some measure of fight to. God above everything, give me the wisdom to know the difference. It's, it's, it's interesting to me why this prayer is not called the courage prayer. It's interesting to me why the prayer is not called the wisdom prayer, actually. Why is it called the serenity prayer? Because the prayer is actually praying for all three things. God, I need, I, I need serenity for this, and I need courage for this, and I need wisdom for this, because all three of these things happen to us. From my perspective, all three of the virtues requested are so intertwined. I mean, this whole need for serenity and courage and wisdom, they're all so intertwined. It would almost be misguided. It would be really farcical to suggest that one of these is more important than the other. So I don't think it's called the serenity prayer because serenity is more meritorious than all of the others. But I have to say, having prayed this prayer th hundreds of times, if not thousands of times, serenity or peacefulness in the midst of unchanging things is actually the virtue that stands out the most for me. And maybe those who have labeled this the serenity prayer agree. I, I don't think it's called the serenity prayer because it's the first of the virtues mentioned or prayed for. I don't think it's the serenity prayer because this is the title that's been given it. I, I think it's called the serenity prayer because serenity and peacefulness, the ability and willingness to step back and to rest our hands and to rest our hearts in the middle of difficult circumstances, I think it's because serenity is the virtue that most of us struggle with the most. I mean, for me, courage and wisdom are two things I certainly need help with, but I promise you, and I, I, you would probably agree, I consistently feel I am better. It is easier to find the courage to change things and the wisdom to know the difference. It's easier to find those two things than to find the, the serenity to accept the things that I can't do one thing about. For this reason, I think the prayer naturally titled itself, Serenity, Composure, Calmness, Peacefulness, Acceptance, Serenity to accept, Acceptance, the act of taking it. The act of receiving it into myself and metabolizing it as opposed to rejecting it. The act of embracing what life gives me. To accept, to take it, to receive it, to hold it, to not fix it, to not correct it, to not nullify it or rectify it, but to do that with a sense of peace. It's really no secret that the Bible, as well as I think all of our you know, human history, the Bible's filled with stories of courageous people, wise people. People who by 
God's great strength changed things. I mean, we don't have to get to human history. Just look at our spiritual religious narrative. You got Moses and the Red Sea, things change. You got Abraham and Baron Sarah, things change. You got little David and big Goliath, things change. You got Gideon and his little army and things change. You got Samson and the Philistines and courage comes and things change. I mean, we were reared on these stories. You've got Daniel in the middle of a lion's den and courage comes and things change. You got Paul and all of his incredible exploits and people find courage and things change. Those are the stories that most of us grew up on, and I, I certainly did, flannel graphs and all. I grew up on stories of people who faced these incredible circumstances, they found courage and things changed. But the thing that we seldom acknowledge, either in our religion or in life, is that this same book and our same history is not just replete with the stories of people who didn't lack courage and who didn't lack wisdom to change things and discern things, but our book is full of people who lack no courage and they lack no wisdom, and yet people replete with courage and wisdom, people who didn't see their miracle come true people who didn't see their circumstances change, people who stood in front of big seas that didn't open, people who got thrust into lion's dens and the lion's mouths weren't sewn shut by God's sovereignty, people who stood in front of giants and the slingshot didn't work. Our Bible, to say it's replete with those stories may be a stretch, but our Bible is certainly, our, our religious history is certainly complete with people who in spite of their courage, in spite of their wisdom, face circumstances that no amount of courage and no amount of wisdom would correct, and they simply had to find serenity there. I was reading the other day the 11th chapter of the New Testament epistle called the Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrews. And this chapter, interestingly, I don't know why I was reading it, I was just reading it. I was sitting back here in the office and it just kind of fell open there and for whatever reason I was reading. And this chapter is called, affectionately called the Hall of Fame of Faith because it's a glowing overview of all of the pre-Christ figures in our story who have done miraculous things. I mean, it, you just move through Hebrews 11. It's Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Rahab and Samson. It's just all of our Hall of Famers. Courageous people who by faith and God's help change things. They showed up at rallies led by racists and they shut them down and they changed things. They stepped onto the stage to do something right and all of Providence met them and the right was done. 
in the middle of incredible struggles with boats filling up with waters and waters raging, they showed up and Jesus came walking on the water. But it's interesting, while Hebrews 11 tells those stories, it actually ends with a more powerful story, or at least as powerful a story. At the end of this veritable hall of fame of superstars, spiritual superstars, the writer that actually the more scholarship investigates, we think the writer of Hebrews may actually have been a female writer. Church history has had a hard time admitting that, but for a lot of reasons, we're beginning to think this was a woman who wrote this book. That's a message for another day. We want to give it to Paul because part of being Christian is to try to attribute everything to Paul. But it probably was a woman in the church. And at the end of this Hall of Fame, Jason, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the superstars, it says, the writer says, and what more shall I say? I mean, what more do you say in a religious setting? You know, after you've told the story of God granting the courage to change things and the wisdom to discern great difficulties, what more shall I say? For the time will fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, work righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, found courage to change the things they could. Out of weakness they were made strong, they became valiant in battle, they turned to flight the armies of the enemies, courage to change the things they could. Women even received their dead raised to life again. Courage, faith. And still, boy, this is where it turns. And still there were others. Others. This is where the reading is not so enjoyable, but at least is meaningful, maybe more. After those who stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned flight, the armies of the aliens, received their dead, raised to life again, there were others who were tortured and did not receive deliverance. There were others who had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonments. Others were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins. Literally, some of the martyrs in the early Christian church in the second and, second and third century, they would sew them up in animal skins, bloody them with the blood of animals, and then put them out in the wild. And they would wander around, sewn up in sheepskins, sawn asunder. Uh, in, in the land we now know as Turkey, in the early church, it was a, it was a common occurrence to take two lives with one, as women who were pregnant would often be, would be sawn asunder. They wondered about sheepskins and goatskins being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. 
And, and you're waiting at the end of this incredible chapter to say, and in spite of all that, in the end they came out strong. It was resolved. No, these were the ones that actually had to pray the first part of the serenity prayer. In the absence of things changing in spite of courage and in the absence of wisdom or things being altered by wisdom, in the absence of that, these were people who faced circumstances that did not move and their only reasonable prayer, would you grant me serenity here? And so, you know, I listened to a man today say, I have four daughters and I know that I'm supposed to have serenity. I know that the work of my soul is to find serenity. But my youngest daughter, for reasons I still don't understand, just had a wedding and she didn't invite me. And a big, tall man wept and said, and it hurts. And there's no fixing it. The wedding is done. And I don't understand. And he looked around the rest of the room and he said, I don't know how I'm supposed to find serenity there. I mean, how do you make peace with not being at your youngest daughter's wedding? God, say it a hundred times, grant me the serenity to accept sawn asunder, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, no deliverance. God, grant me the serenity to accept the fatal prognosis, the divorce that isn't changing, the bankruptcy that isn't going away. Still there were others who wandered in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. And then this line that's amazing, of whom the world was not worthy. Hmm. Of whom the world was not worthy. It's interesting that the text doesn't talk about the illustrious Hall of Fame as being those of whom the world was not worthy. The world really wasn't worthy for those misfits that never fit. Those lives that didn't find the yellow brick road. The, the lives that didn't find, you know, the, the resolve of the song of whom the world was not worthy. I think the beauty, and maybe the reason this is not called the courage prayer or the wisdom prayer, is because as beautiful as wisdom can be, and as beautiful as courage and the resolve of problems can be, there may not be anything more beautiful and lively than people that find themselves in unresolvable circumstances in difficult places who finally realize this is not this is not a storm that's going to be missed this is not a fire that's going to be escaped this is a circumstance that, that this is a circumstance that is unremitting and i'm going to have to find peace in it i think of the words of the apostle paul to the church at corinth when he said you know god really is faithful I just want you to know God's faithful. We're not always faithful, but God's always faithful. And this is the way God's faithful. He said, David, he said, God's faithful because God will not allow you to ever be tempted above what you have a capacity for. 
I used to think that meant that God was sitting at some kind of a, you know, a, a desk and all these things that were happening to us were coming across God's desk and God was with some sense of caprice and a mixture of care was looking and saying, well, yeah, that can happen, that can't happen. But that's not really what the text implies. Steve, the text says God will not allow you to be tempted above what you're able because God will provide a way of escape. I always thought escape meant you're in the middle of something tough and you're able to get out of it, right? You, you, you escape it by getting out of it. Listen to what Paul said. Daily said, God will not allow you ever to go through anything you can't handle, but God will provide you a way of escape. And here's the line that's really intriguing, that you might be able to endure it. Wait a minute. I thought escaping meant I didn't have to endure it. Escaping meant I get out of it. But Sharon, he said, God will provide a way of escape that you might be able to endure it. So the escape isn't the absence of the circumstance. The escape is the present capacity to endure it. The ability in the middle of the circumstance to find place of peace inside of yourself where no matter what is happening around you and no matter how deep and far-reaching its impact is on you there is a place inside of you that it cannot touch there's a place inside of you that God has granted God First grant me the courage to get out of whatever I can get out of. But when the trial is done and the wedding is over and the diagnosis and prognosis are fixed, grant me the ability to escape this. Not physically, not geographically, in the 12-step world, that's called geographical sobriety. When you think if you just get over there, you're going to be okay. But as Socrates said, the problem with that person is they take themselves with them wherever they go. But God will not allow you to be tempted above what you're able, but will provide a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. What allows us to bear unremitting unchanging difficulties it's called serenity it's what the Apostle Paul found and I'll, I'll finish with this little story 2nd Corinthians 12 said that the Apostle Paul told the church he said you know one day it was probably when he was outside of Lystra he had been there sharing the gospel and some people had literally took taken him and stoned him and after he was stoned, and, and stoning is unthinkable, a group of people put you down in a, you know, a descending bowl, they stand around the rim of that and they start throwing rocks at you and you dance as long as you can until they start connecting. And then they connect and you stagger and then they connect more and finally you fall into a heap and the stones pummel you until you're dead. And that's what happened to Paul and then they drug him outside of the city 
because they didn't want his carcass tainting their city. So they drug him outside the city and they left him there. He said, left, they left me for dead and I probably did die because I had one of these paranormal experiences, this post-death experiences, Paul said, where I went up into the heavens. One of those things that you hear, you know, friends of yours say, they go up and they literally look themselves lying there on the gurney or on the operating table. And Paul said, I was there in the third heavens and while I was there in the third heavens, I saw some things that are unutterable. I saw some things that you just can't explain. And I was, as I was there, for whatever reason, God had more for me to do here. I started coming back down the staircase, going back into that body. And as I moved back into my body, I came back to you. And I came back with the distilled experience of this third heavens Thing that had happened to me but I couldn't share it it literally was unutterable because when I crossed the membrane back language failed me to explain the colors and the sounds and the experiences that had happened there and Paul said while I was staggering back into this world from that third heavens experience listen to this he said as I was staggering back in on my way back there was given me God grant me there was given me what he called, and this is an old Hebrew idiom, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. Uh, in an appositional statement, he followed up that statement. There was given me a thorn in the flesh, and he described it as a messenger. The Greek word's angelos. 98% of the time, angelos is used in the New Testament as translated angel. Uh, most translators are squeamish to translate this angel because they don't like the theology that it implies. Because all of a sudden this mixes things like God and the devil, the good and the bad, this clear binary that we have, you know, where we know what's God and we know what's the devil and we know what's gifts and we know what's curses. But Paul said, as I was coming down to the third heavens, there was given me a thorn in the flesh and he said it was, a, it was an angel of Satan and it was sent to buffet me and it was the gift that nobody wanted it was it was it was demonic and it was angelic it was horrible and it was wonderful because he said the thing riveted into my side and as it riveted into my side he said the pain was so severe and, and I want to tell you what's really interesting about Paul's thorn in the flesh Roy he never said exactly what it was. And you know why? Because if he would have said what it was, whether it was diabetes or poor eyesight or a divorce, then only the people who would have had that particular thing would have really identified. What he was saying was, your thorn's different than my thorn, but I want to tell you what a thorn is. A thorn is that thing that you, you don't have one thing to do with it, you didn't cause it, but you're, you're coming down often from the very staircase of heaven and out of the blue this thing hits you and, and Paul said, when it hit me, I couldn't understand that a third heaven and a thorn would be in the same chapter of my life. Why? I, I couldn't understand that, that this thorn had any reason to be here. And he said, I knew immediately that something this painful had to be bad and it had to go because it was threatening everything that the third heavens had just given me. And he said, so I literally besought the Lord thrice. And 
that's a really difficult thing in the Greek to translate, Chris. Literally, translators wrestle with this. I think the best translators recognize that this Greek phrase that they have wrestled with for hundreds of years is really a Hebrew idiom, Lee, that means I wrestled with the Lord incessantly. Not just three times. But I wrestled with the Lord in Hebrew fashion, morning, noon, and night, beginning of prayer, end of prayer, body of prayer. In trinary fashion, I begged the Lord that he would get, that God would get this thorn out of my flesh because it was destroying me. And he said, I, I pulled on it and I wrestled with it. It was that part of my resume. It was that part of my life. It was that daughter who wouldn't invite me. It was that addict loved one it was that part of my life that I just couldn't change that no matter how much courage I had no matter how much wisdom I had it just stuck in me and in spite of the fact that my faith was big enough to take me into the third heaven it still it still was there and he said I begged the Lord incessantly that this thing might depart from me that it might go and like Jesus in Gethsemane, I beat my head against the grain of the universe until I bloodied the knuckles of my knocking and I battered my heart just wanting my life to be different. Just wanting things to be different. And he said, finally, through my tears and through my begging, I heard a voice and the voice said, I'm not going to move it. But my grace is sufficient for you. And there is meaning in this apparent madness. My grace is sufficient for you. For when you are weak, God said, then I am strong. And Paul said, I can't explain to you everything that means to me, but I can tell you that when my perspective changed and serenity began to come, I was able to look at this part of my life that anybody in their right mind, Steve, would want gone. Anybody would want that part of their resume cleaned up. Anybody would want this. And he said, did you know when serenity came to me, I looked at this unremitting thorn and Mandy, he said, the thing that I had wanted removed, he said, now I embrace and I therefore glory in my infirmities that the power of God might spread a tent over me. And the very thing that I thought was going to ruin my life, he said, I'll be doggone. Jason, he said, it just might be the very thing that's going to make my life. And he concluded by telling the church, he said, you know, it just might be that I have greatly suffered, that I might be greatly comforted. Joel, he said, it just might be that my suffering has been for your sake because when I've been greatly suffering, it has driven me to God and in that I have been greatly comforted and I now spend the rest of my life comforting others with the comfort wherewith God has comforted me. And as a man told Frederick Beekner, you have become a wonderful steward of your pain. Just today, 
someone dear to me, sat with someone who was incredibly hurting. And, and today, in that person's incredible pain, experiencing immense and immeasurable betrayal, that person turned to a friend. And the friend came. And you know where the greatest point of ministry was? Glenn, it was right out of the middle of their own pain. The ability to identify with another person's pain through the pain they've experienced. I was greatly afflicted that I might be greatly comforted. That I might comfort others, Sandy, with the very comfort wherewith God comforted me. And I thought that thorn was an IV of bitterness and pain. Turned out that thorn in my life was a funnel that opened me to a dimension of grace that I would have never needed and never known except for my own suffering. So I'm always going to start at the end and ask for wisdom. And I'm always going to get really heartened in the middle and hope for courage. But in the end, it just might be that the greatest of all of these is when we whisper with Jesus, nevertheless, not my will, but thine. And you walk out of a place called Gethsemane, bloodied and battered. You even had to have an angel come and comfort you there while you wrestled and dug your fingers into that olive press. But you walk out battered and bruised, and did you know, Lee, that's the moment that he looked at his disciples on the other side of that, Doug, is when he looked at them and said, my peace I leave with you, not as the world gives, but as I give. And I can imagine that the disciples looked at that beleaguered guy on the way to a cross in his own martyrdom and said, what kind of peace is that? <laughs> And Jesus said, it's mine, and it's real, and it will sustain you in the absence of deliverance. And God, Shelley, is not unfaithful and will never let one of you go through anything that you can't handle. And you know why? It's not because God is sadistically measuring and shooting bullets at your feet and making you all into divine court gestures. It's because everything that happens to you, God provides strength either to get out of it and if you can't get out of it, to find peace in the middle of it that surrounds a part of you that can never be touched. That, brothers and sisters, is good news. Can you say amen? Let's close our eyes for a minute and just settle into this truth. For those of you that have been filled with wisdom lately, to God be the glory. For those of you who have valiantly mustered courage and seen things remarkably, even miraculously changed, thanks be to God. I don't doubt it a bit. But for the rest of you that have circumstances that you have bloodied your knuckles and broken your heart trying to fix, and they are not budging, and that thorn is not moving. Good news. 
God will grant you serenity. God will grant you a peace called Christ that may not protect the outer layers, but it will protect the innermost part of your being. And in the midst of the storm and in the midst of the fire, all manner of things shall be well, and you will be untouchable. You will be safe because God is faithful. So as our eyes are closed and our hearts are open, let us pray the prayer again to conclude this service. Pray it with me now, even if it's halting. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And all of God's people looked up and said, Amen. Amen. Go in Christ's peace. We'll see you next week. Maybe even Wednesday night for Midrash if you feel really holy and righteous. But if not, next Sat not next Sunday, next Saturday, 515. Go get your kids. God bless you. Go in Christ's peace.